Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. When human beings are given ultimate privilege and ultimate power, unless they actively fight against it, and it is possible to counteract it through sort of mental work, unless you actively fight against it, your empathy immediately starts dropping because you start assuming that if I'm way up here, I must have gotten here because I deserve it. Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It has been a minute since I've been able to open one of these by saying, this conversation is fun. This is a fun conversation. But today, I can. I reached out to Madeline Miller, who's written some of my absolute favorite books of the past couple of years, books that have meant a lot to me and that have also been a bit of a respite in this period. She's the author of The Song of Achilles, which was published in 2012 and was a New York Times bestseller and won the Orange Prize for Fiction. Then in 2019, she published Circe, which ah, I just loved that book. It was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. It won all kinds of awards. It's being adapted for HBO. But Miller is also a trained classicist. She was a teacher. She directed Shakespeare plays. She's a fascinating, brilliant thinker and an incredibly fun person to have a conversation with. And this is not a conversation where you need to have read these books. It's a conversation about myth and fiction and the archetypes and stories that form the basis for a lot of our culture and how we interact with them and what their modern variants are. And it's a great place to put your brain for a couple minutes that is not maybe where it's been. So I felt lucky to get to have it. I'm glad to get to bring it to you. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Madeline Miller. Madeline Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I think like any good myth, we should begin with your origin story. <laughs> I've heard you talk about a teacher who took you aside in high school and said that he could have you reading the Iliad in the original Greek in a year. And thinking back to my own high school experience, I don't think most high schoolers would have found that to be an attractive <laughs> offer. Why did you? I had always been kind of a quirky is the nice way to put it, um, kid who was interested in things that were, you know, oftentimes the feedback I got from my peers is that those things were super boring. But when I was a child, I, I really found love with the Greek myths. And I had taken Latin as soon as I could take Latin. 
And I, I absolutely loved it. There was something to me that was just really electric about knowing that I was listening to something or reading something that was so old, that was carrying, you know, these previous generations and their thoughts and their ideas and their stories, you know, to me. And so when he said that, I it was just like he was offering to give me the key to the secret world. You know, it was like, here, here's Narnia. Do you want to walk through? And so, of course, I I said yes, um, because to me, it was like being given the, the keys to the kingdom. So wait, it was the original Latin, not the original Greek? Well, so he was my Latin teacher. So I had already been studying Latin with him. And then he went on to say, you know, I see you're obsessed with this. How about how about we add Greek? And the nice Got thing it. is that if you already know Latin, you sort of get Greek as like, I wouldn't say it's a free bonus, but you get at least, you know, a, a good foothold in the world because, yes, there is a different alphabet, but Latin is a wonderful foundational language for learning ancient Greek. So if you know a little Latin, your your Greek is is Greek is much easier to learn. How many languages can you read? Latin and Greek and uh, a little bit of, of Spanish. And have you done any translation work amidst all the classics work you've done? Um, I have done some for for sort of graduate school exercises because I was very interested in the idea of translation along with adaptation. So I took a bunch of courses um, at the graduate level in translation and adaptation and what I have come to believe is that translation is much, much harder than writing novels <laughs> and that there is a real art to it that is almost entirely a thankless art because what you are trying to do is sort of by an alchemical mysterious process, bring this thing across this divide in a way that almost erases yourself. And the people who can do it, I think I, I, I'm just in awe of. So I, I have dabbled in it, but I, I don't think it's something that I would ever do because I think it really you need a very particular thing, gift for it. This actually wasn't where I was going to go at this point in, in, in the interview, but, but let's talk about translation for a minute because I'm fascinated by it because I don't understand it at all. And you reviewed for The Washington Post the Emily Wilson translation of The Odyssey, which arrived to huge fanfare mm -hmm. a couple years back and came out before Cersei. And I think many people might have like on the edge of their consciousness the idea that a big new translation of The Odyssey came out, but not really have a sense of why that's important, why they should care, and also what would make a translation different from another? Aren't they all supposed to be just finding the analog of the word in another language in our language? So you, you gave a great review of that, talking about why you thought, as somebody who's taught this book, often it should be the standard. Like, What are the kinds of decisions that get made in that that make something like that new translation important and valuable? Mm. Um, well, first of all, I'm so thrilled you're giving me the opportunity to talk about Emily Wilson's translation because I really think it is so extraordinary. It is it is a true work of genius and a work of art. And I think it is going to bring the Odyssey to so many new readers. And I think she is just, she is a ferocious intellect um, as well as an artist. So that combination is pretty much unbeatable. And I think what makes translation so challenging is that at literally every word, you are making choices of nuance. And, you know, you can make a very small choice that tips a sentence one way or another, and then you multiply that over the course of the whole sentence, and then you multiply that over the course of the... I mean, with literally every word, I think you could probably spend 
days debating it. And in fact, Emily Wilson talks about how the very first line of the Odyssey, um, which is, you know, she translates as, tell me about a complicated man. Sometimes you'll hear it in more complicated ways. For example, I think that I think it's the Fitzgerald that says, um, sing in me muse and through me tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending. Um, and that word skilled in all ways of contending or complicated in Emily Wilson's translation is this word polytropos, which means, well, it's a very complicated word in the Greek, um, that poly is many, like polygon. And the tropos means turning, and so the man of many turnings is the way it often gets translated. Um, but it, it implies men of many turnings in sort of two senses. One, it means that Odysseus has a lot of resources. He has the ability to kind of tackle things in a lot of different ways. And he has a lot of different gifts and, you know, the ability to improvise. And polytropos can also imply this sort of sense that he's been turned around himself by the fates, um, that he's been kind of tossed and has been whirled across the globe, which it the beginning of the Odyssey he has. And so it's a very complicated word. And Emily Wilson has talked about how she spent days, you know, trying to figure out what is the right word for that in English, because there isn't an exact analog. Complicated, she was concerned, was possibly too interior for what it means, that that for us, complicated implies this sort of psychological depth, complexity, naughtiness, possibly self-contradictory, all of which absolutely describe Odysseus. But she's right that that interiority is not really there in the Greek word. But she eventually decided on it for this amazing reason. She felt like it, A, he was complicated. <laughs> B, it sort of implied that depth of, of resources. But also because she was looking for a word that had to do with turning or bending. And plec in complicated is from the Latin word for, for folding. And so she liked the idea that like folding, turning was kind of in the word, even though it was in the Latin root as opposed to the Greek root. So, I mean, that was one word in the whole thing. And she put that much thought into it um, and in trying to get something that, that would be right. So that is a very long answer. <laughs> but the other thing that I think you have to think about is that you are always going to be making choices about what you are prioritizing in a translation. So, you know, you can prioritize, like, trying to get as close to the literal Greek meaning as possible. And I think maybe Fitzgerald was taking a stab at that with skilled in all ways of contending. But that doesn't exactly flow trippingly off the tongue. And so what he's sacrificing is he's sacrificing speed. And one of the things that Homer has in the original is this incredible forward motion. Um, you know, it's really an exciting, exciting read. And it's exciting to listen to it. And Emily Wilson, I think, really wanted to keep that speed, that force, that galloping pace that Homer has. And so for her, she really wanted to make sure that her words were not, you know, that she wasn't getting the translational bloat that often happens. That is remarkable to me that those <laughs> two first sentences are from the same book. Yeah. Are translations of the same book. Yeah. I mean, I would be stopped cold by that Fitzgerald translation. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, no offense to Fitzgerald, but I think a lot of people have been stopped cold by it. <laughs> what makes the Odyssey worth reading today? I mean, Odysseus is a character in both of your books, and uh, I actually want to ask you about him. But what is it about that book, given that we can read all this current and modern literature, that 
would be your sell to it? If you're somebody listening to this and thinking, should I pick up that Emily Wilson translation when I could read, you know, anything? Why something written by Homer however many years ago? I think that for me, what draws me to these stories is just how incredibly fresh and vibrant they still feel. That, you know, technology has changed and culture has changed, but human beings and the things that we struggle with and think about and the things that we love and fear are all still with us. And so when I look at the Odyssey, I sort of see it at one level, as as this story of an exhausted war veteran who is desperate to get home to his family. And when he finally gets home to his family, he discovers that it's much harder to reenter his old life than he thought it would be. And I think that's a story that can echo down through the generations. But I think we can even go a step further out than that and say this is a story about longing for home. And the Greek word for for homecoming, which is what Odysseus yearns for for the whole Odyssey, is nostos. Um, And it's where we get the English word nostalgia. Um, It's sort of the pain of wanting that homecoming, that pang you feel when when you miss home. And I think we've all felt that way. We've all had those moments where we feel lost on the waves and surrounded by monsters and wishing for safe harbor. So for me, I just see so many, many kind of universal human experiences. And at the same time, I think it's just, it's a it's an incredibly engaging story. There are monsters and witches who turn men into pigs and <laughs> all, all kinds of exciting things. So it's, it's wise, it's exciting, and it's, you know, speaks down through the centuries. So I love that Nostos nostalgia connection, because when I think of nostalgia, it includes a dimension of illusion. You're nostalgic mm. for something that isn't really there. Um, otherwise, you would just be remembering it. And something I always find very affecting about the Odysseus story is that homecoming isn't great, yeah. <laughs> that he spends all these years trying to get home. And then there, I don't want to, it feels weird to say, I don't want spoilers <laughs> I know. on a, like maybe one of the <laughs> oldest things in the, the canon. But there is like the the first end of it. Yeah. And then there's later a second that is in its ways even more tragic and speaks more to you spend all your life or so much time trying to achieve this one thing and you think when you have it, you'll be happy. And then the person you became to achieve it means you're a person who can no longer be happy with mm-hmm. it, right? You you become so good at striving mm-hmm. that even once you have achieved your goal, you can't stop striving. So you just become more and more dissatisfied. And like that bit of tragedy in it has always struck me as very deeply wise. And and you pulled that into into Circe. And I'm just curious how you think about that, what you take from that. Yes. I mean, I think, I think absolutely that was beautifully said that, you know, uh, so I am going to get into Odyssey spoilers here. As you say, it's always a little, you know, it's 3000 years old, doesn't count. But Odysseus comes home and he, I think, experiences both this sort of rush of of being home, but also there's this alienation and, and dislocation. I mean, I, I always think about how sad it is that he misses his son's entire childhood and young adulthood. You know, when he leaves, his son is an infant, a year old maybe. And when he comes back, he's 21. And he's missed out on all those years of his wife, Penelope, and their marriage and their home. He, His mother has died while he was away. Um, his father has gotten quite old and infirm while he was away. And, and you know, that what it means to be so alienated, you know, here you are, you're back with the people you love, but but can you connect with them? 
is it possible? And then, of course, what happens is, as you say, you know, in becoming this survivor, this best of the Greeks, the man who um, was the architect of the fall of Troy, who built the Trojan horse that finally cracked the city and was called best of the Greeks and given the armor of Achilles, now that Achilles was dead, who was honored and treated as this, as this almost God on earth, and then thrown from that into these years of suffering and then brought home again. I mean, the. I think it, it makes sense to me why he kind of loses it at the end, because that is the end. So he has this wonderful reunion with his wife. But then in order to have that reunion with his wife, he has to slaughter all the men who have been hanging out in his house trying to get his wife to marry them, saying, Odysseus is never coming home. Come on, give up, marry one of us instead. So he slaughters all of them, which in the world of Greek mythology kind of, I, I hate to say this, but makes sense. You know, they have been abusing his hospitality. They were plotting to kill his son. They were harassing his wife. And so, you know, he comes home and he kind of cleans house. But then their families show up at the very end of the Odyssey and they say, you just killed all our children. And his response is to start killing them too. And at that moment, Athena comes down and you get kind of the classic deus or dea, ex machina, um, where she says, okay, enough slaughter. And it leaves the, the reader or the listener with this amazing moment of disquiet where what would have happened if Athena didn't come? What would have happened? And what happens after when Athena goes away again? Do you want to talk about that? Because it is something that you build on in Circe, but comes from, I think, a different book than The Odyssey this sort of second ending of it that I found incredibly affecting, which mm. you can tell me if you don't want to do that spoiler. But but if you do, I'd love to hear you tell it and talk about it. Sure, sure. So um, in looking at Circe, um, I was using kind of four basic myths as pillars. Obviously, the Odyssey was one of them. One was another myth from Ovid. Um, there was a myth uh where she encounters her niece Medea that came from the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes. But then there was this fourth myth that I used for the end of the novel. And what's interesting about this myth is that we have it only in the barest of bones. That the Iliad and the Odyssey were the two most famous of the ancient epics, of the ancient Greek epics, and they're the ones that have survived. But we know that there were many, many others. We have summaries of them. We have references to them. Sometimes we have lines from them. But one of these lost epics uh, was called the Telegony. And the Telegony was about... Circe's son with Odysseus, that when Odysseus leaves her island, this is not referenced in the Odyssey at all, um, but when Odysseus leaves her island, she's pregnant. She has a son. She raises him on her magical island of Aiaia, calls him Telegonus, and when he comes of age, he goes looking for his father. And um, he heads to Ithaca. Some stuff happens. I'm going to be a little vague. And uh, this son ends up bringing Penelope and Odysseus's son with his wife Penelope Telemachus back to Circe's island. And so that was a key piece of the novel for me, um, not so much because of Odysseus, but because Penelope, the brilliant wife, the patient wife, finally gets to meet Circe and Circe gets to meet her. And I see these as two of the most complicated, intelligent, um, interesting women. And I was so excited to get them in a room together. But 
Um, what that myth also alludes to, and some other myths about Odysseus, is that he sort of goes off and remarries. There's a myth where he remarries. There's a myth where he turns sort of violent and paranoid. And I, I was really interested in that and why psychologically that would happen. Because for me, the core of these novel, uh, these my novels, is always to look at these myths from a psychological angle. So I was sort of thinking about Odysseus from from two different perspectives in that moment. I was thinking about, first of all, classic PTSD. The fact that you come home after having lived this incredibly adrenaline rush, terrifying life, and can you just, you know, herd goats for the rest of your life as this minor king who doesn't get to do anything exciting? Um, I think for someone like Odysseus, who is clearly an adrenaline junkie, that would be incredibly difficult. And then on on top of that, I think you have the fact that Odysseus was really good at what he did. And, and he, in fact, he was the best at what he did. And he was so honored by the Greeks. And again, you know, can you just go home and say, okay, now I've lived my whole life filled with gods and monsters and always seeking something new. Can I just go home and put on my old life? And so I, I imagine that there would be both a trauma, but also a sort of a natural psychological sense of, I'm bored. And that Odysseus would not be able to find fulfillment there, at home, the way that, say, you know, Penelope was kind of forced to, that he's just the type of personality that would always need to be kind of restlessly seeking more fame, more interesting things, more knowledge. And there's actually, in this, I am cribbing a little bit from Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, which I really love. And it's a very inspiring poem, and it ends, you know, very, it has a number of very quotable parts in it. It has the part about drinking life to the lees. It's sort of spoken by an aged Odysseus. Ulysses is Odysseus's Roman name. An aged Odysseus who is saying, you know, I've come home to Ithaca and I've gotten bored and I want to go back out and ride the waves again. And it's 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 kind of about the potential for for constant lifelong learning, about exploration, the desire for the human spirit to to just keep going. And all of that is wonderful, but also there's this sort of feeling that hangs through the poem that, oh my gosh, like what a difficult person to live with. <laughs> I want to boldly generalize some of the, the the storytelling differences that have happened from from there to here, because one that you're getting at here, when I think of the stories we are told in our culture, the modal story, if you go to a movie, say, and it obviously doesn't describe everything, is you want something, and what if you got it? Wouldn't that be great? Mm. And Greek stories are, you want something, and what if you got it? Mm. What if you really got it good and hard? Yep. And what if that were terrible? <laughs> and there's something really interesting in the difference between a culture that imagines that achieving what we believe we want will be the path to happiness. I always watch romantic comedies and think after these two very unlikely characters get together, like, well, how are things going to be in five years when it's no longer exciting? <laughs> yes. And in the Greek myths, it's always like that, right? You, you you get what you want and then, you know, you end up looking at yourself in a pond for the rest of the millennium or whatever it might be. <laughs> it, like, what do you think is the difference between a culture that chooses that format for storytelling versus a culture like ours that chooses this much more goal-oriented uh, format for storytelling? Yeah. Um, I mean, 
I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I would say about Greek mythology that's so interesting is just how horrible the gods are, that the gods are really not exemplars. You know, you you might aspire to have the kind of power that they have, but for the most part, they aren't virtuous. They're petty and selfish. The fact that they have achieved, you know, this ideal situation of having all the power you know, eternal life, um, the ability to fulfill every whim and every desire has not made them good people. If anything, it has done the opposite. And I think it's really interesting that that the Greeks were were so aware of that. And it isn't that, you know, sometimes they would have sort of idealized versions of the gods. You know, you would worship Zeus the father, and hopefully this would be the ideal positive father. But in their stories, in Homer and in so many myths, you know, the gods are basically way worse than than humans and, and mortals are. And so that was something that I really wanted to explore in Circe is this idea of when you do get everything you want, when you do have absolutely everything, it doesn't make you a good person. Actually, it makes you kind of a terrible person. And what's interesting about this, so I have this interest in psychology, is that psychological studies have proved that that is in fact correct. That when human beings are given ultimate privilege and ultimate power, unless they actively fight against it, and it is possible to counteract it through sort of mental work, unless you actively fight against it, your empathy immediately starts dropping. Because you start assuming that if I'm way up here, I must have gotten here because I deserve it. And therefore, everybody who's down there, they don't deserve it. And so I'm better than they are. And therefore, I can, you know, treat them terribly if I want to, because they're there because they have, you know, they're not as as good as I am. And I think it's so interesting that the human brain goes there and that the Greeks knew that. <laughs> they knew that and and they sort of manifested that in their mythology. I like how you connected that to, I don't want to call it the myth of American individualism, I call it the rationalizations of American individualism. And I wonder if you think it disciplines a society to have its foundational and fundamental stories be about the way both power and achievement can twist you, as opposed to having its foundational stories be about the way the attainment of power and achievement will redeem you. Yeah. It's an incredibly important story to to acknowledge. I, I I think it's a damaging myth to assume that that kind of power and achievement will not affect you because we know from psychology that it does. And one of the the other authors that I love, um, this is my other sort of thing that I study and, and work on is I'm a, a theater director for Shakespeare. And Shakespeare was so interested in that idea of can you be a good leader and a good person? And he looked at it over dozens of plays. He was constantly interested in, in what makes a good leader, what makes someone in power be able to be good, and can you be moral and an effective leader at the same time? One of the plays where he looked at this was King Lear. 
And King Lear is the classic example of kind of someone who's been acting like a Greek god. No one has told King Lear no for 80 years, and he's just been doing whatever he wanted. And his servants and his counselors have all said, yes, yes, you're amazing. Yes, everything you say is is terrific. And the first time someone says no to him, he has this complete meltdown. And what I like about Lear is that he's able to kind of come back from that, that he reconnects with his humility and his humanity. And by the end of the story, he's able to realize, you know, I screwed up. I surrounded myself with flatterers. I thought everything I did was right. I wasn't acting with empathy toward my subjects. And, you know, and he's able to kind of come back to his humanity. So even though King Lear is a crushing tragedy, (laughs) I actually feel that it's hopeful for the human spirit that, you know, even when we stray too far in that direction, if we want to come back, we can come back. Support for The Gray Area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Who is your favorite major Greek god? Oh, good question. And you you can define favorite however you want, most interesting, (laughs) whatever. Oh, gosh. I mean, when I was a kid, I would definitely have said Athena. I I mean, who doesn't love Athena, right? She's the smart one. It's the same reason why everyone loves Odysseus. You have to love the smart one. I loved that she was, you know, so clever and that she was able to really hold her own and sort of make people have to have to bend to her will. And of course, she was a powerful woman, which was really nice. But as I have grown up, I, I find Athena um, as a figure much more problematic, that oftentimes she is 
brutal to other women. <laughs> um, and that the ancient Greeks actually saw her as, as something a little closer to non-binary. She was born from Zeus's head. And so therefore she was this idea that she she had a mother, but her mother was sort of expunged from her birth. It was only her father who who kind of birthed her into the world. So this she was sort of set in this special category. So although I still really love Athena in many ways, um, I think if I had to choose... I might, I might have to go with, with Artemis. I mean, I think being able to run through the woods all the time and, and, you know, be with the animals all the time would be pretty great. Tell people more about Artemis because she's one of, so when I was young, I should say, and this is part of my, why I love your book so much. I was just an absolute Greek mythology obsessive for years. Like I, like as a kid, got every book from the library in it, knew like every myth by heart. It's been a while since I've been as deep in them, but Greek and Norse mythology, I just adored. And so I think people know the kind of, they know like Zeus and Athena and and, and maybe Dionysus, but but Artemis is less well-known. Yeah. So she is is the, the twin sister of Apollo, um, and they're very much associated with sort of the sun, Apollo, and the moon, Artemis. She has these interesting associations as well with sort of, sometimes she is another face of the goddess Hecate or Hecate, who's the um, the goddess of, of witchcraft and, and magic. So she's interesting because she's associated with the moon. There's sort of all these kind of witchcraft associations that, that sneak into her. So I like that sort of hidden side of her. She's the goddess of the hunt. She is another one of the virgin goddesses, the goddesses who, who go to Zeus and say, I'm never marrying, deal with it. And so she sort of lives her life completely under her own agency. I like the fact that she is also has this whole sort of band of other of nymphs and women that she takes under her wing and they all sort of run through the forest together hunting animals. She is um sometimes included in this category of goddess called the Potnia Theron, which in Greek means the the mistress of the beasts, um, who has connections to the animal world and oftentimes is depicted with an animal by their side. And so I have always loved the mistress of the beast kind of trope archetype. So all any goddess who who fits there, I, I have a I have a preference for. And speaking of, Circe is also kind of in that, like she's clearly derived from that type of goddess, the mistress of the beast as well. So all those things make me like Artemis. She is incredibly pitiless if you make her angry. The classic Artemis myth is that she's bathing naked in a moonlit pool and a hunter comes by and he happens to see her. It doesn't matter that he didn't mean to see her. It doesn't matter that he's immediately sorry. She turns him into a deer and has him torn apart by his own hunting dogs. So she was not the most merciful goddess, I will say. (laughs) Although not many of them are all that merciful. Yes, I mean, she's right in in the middle there. (laughs) One thing about that and about sort of her mythology, but, but the broader cosmos, is that there's a tension or a strangeness, I think, particularly in Greek mythology, but not only, where you do have these very powerful women figures, mm-hmm. Athena and Artemis and, and so on. And yet you read the stories and it is this unrelenting festival of rape yep. and trickery and Zeus is constantly turning into something to have sex with somebody. And deep, I don't mean bondage in the BDSM sense, but in the in the slavery yep. sense. And I'm curious how you think about that 
tension between the way that on the one on the one hand there were like female gods and, and and female power in this, but on the other, if you if you read the stories, you know, women are very often um they're just plot points, um, you know, Helen and Troy and so on. And there's just a tremendous amount of violence towards them. Yeah. I mean, it was something that I have been disturbed by since I first encountered them. And I think in some ways it's amazing that we teach these myths to children because they are full of the most horrific cruelty and full of sexual assault and rape and slavery and really, you know, horrific treatment of of women and, and others. And so I, I do think it is it is interesting that there was not a complete suppression of women, that these ideas of, of powerful women existed in the mythology. I mean, I always think about Hera when I think about some of the feelings about women in, in Greek mythology, because of course, Hera is maybe, I mean, when you read the mythology as a kid, you're like, oh, Hera, you're so annoying. You know, Hera is constantly jealous of Zeus. It's like, haven't you learned by now, Hera, that he's always going to cheat on you? Stop being surprised by this. And, you know, then Hera lashes out and almost invariably punishes the women as opposed to her husband. Or if the women have a child, she punishes the child, as in the case of Hercules. Hercules is a son of Zeus by by another woman, and so she goes after Hercules, and that's why he has to perform the labors um, and all of that. And so, so she's kind of the the classic nagging harpy shrew wife figure. And I think it's amazing that 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 was their idea of the queen of the gods. The most powerful goddess was totally unlikable. One of the things that I, I'm sort of waiting for is I hope someone will write a really great Hera novel where they completely <laughs> find a way to, you know, push back against that very sexist portrait of her and um, and allow her to have some agency. So I hope someone, if someone out there is listening and you want to write the great Hera novel, please do it because I think she she needs to be brought back from from her portrait. But to get to get back to what you said, I, I think it is very interesting the the sort of tension between the fact that women had such limited power and yet there were these goddesses. What attracted you to Circe? Um I loved the fact that Circe was one of the very few women in Greek mythology who wields power and is not punished for it by the end of her story. I loved the fact that I saw her as an artist, that she is, you know, she is a goddess, but her power doesn't actually come from being a goddess. It comes from her witchcraft. And witchcraft is totally distinct from divine power um, in the ancient way of thinking. Witchcraft is something that you do, and it comes out of experience and knowledge and skill and hard work and dedication and trial and error. And so for me, that's that's an art. And I loved that that was the source of her power. I love the fact that she is the first witch in what gets called Western literature. So she she's born a lesser, lesser goddess. I mean, if you thought that the worst thing to be um, is to be one of these lesser goddesses because you are constantly being treated as, you know, a pawn by the greater gods or as prey by both gods and humans. So she's born into this position where she's one of these lesser goddesses who has very little power or control over her life. And she decides to literally invent her own power. So that was really interesting to me. She says, I, I can't I I can't work within the system. I have to go outside the system. <laughs> and 
I liked how mysterious she was in the Odyssey. I mean, in some ways I didn't like it. In some ways I was very disappointed by how sort of flat and and unexplored her character is. But I think that that created an opportunity to really dig in into her psychology. You know, why, how do you start turning people into pigs and why do you start doing it? I, I want to go back to Cersei, but I want to pick up on something you said about lesser gods because particularly from if you're looking back from current monotheism where there is one god and it is perfect and unknowable and mysterious and and, and so on you go back here and it has always struck me as like a soviet bureaucracy <laughs> where you have somebody up on the top and it would seem if you're like a peasant which is to say a human that it would be great to be in the communist party but if you're a low level communist functionary <laughs> It may not be great, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, it may seem good, and there are some perks for sure, but you are, like, just high enough to be in the, like, the cutting zone, <laughs> but not high enough to have... Like, what do you think the Greeks understood, and particularly in their in their mythos, just about hierarchy and bureaucracy and the, the cruelties of it? Yeah. Well, I, I would first of all say that I, I think it's interesting that you used um, a governmental structure for, for an analog there, because or political structure, because that jump of sort of seeing the gods as, you know, metaphors for human power structures was absolutely present in the ancient world. Um, and it was something that Virgil, I think, is, is you know, it's not quite explicit, but it's it's very clearly in Virgil's Aeneid that when he is talking about gods, he's making analogies to the type of power that, that, people on earth can have. So I think that that idea that you brought up was was sort of, you know, either consciously or unconsciously, depending on on who was interacting with it, was absolutely there. And how, you know, it's kind of like looking at organizational politics and, and how, how group dynamics work. So on that level, I think there's, there's a lot of psychological <laughs> acuity to, to the way they describe that. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's so, again, so interesting that oftentimes being a god in the Greek myths is so unappealing. In some ways, I think this is why Greek philosophy was such a powerful part of life, you know, is that the gods were there to explain why the world was so capricious and unpredictable and why you couldn't sort of, you know, you your ship might get smashed. Who knew why? Well, you had not done the right thing, or maybe your father had not done the right thing, or maybe his father had not done the right thing for Poseidon, and Poseidon had been waiting all this time to get you. You know, that the gods sort of spoke to this chaotic, natural world around them. But then Greek philosophy came in to kind of fill that, you know, to fill the the desire to to understand the world and to really try and, and systematize the world. You know, when we think of philosophy today, we think of people arguing over very abstract theories. But the Greek philosophers were natural scientists. So they were, you know, cataloging the creatures they saw around them. Um, they were discussing every aspect of the natural world. They were they were, you know, physical scientists as well sort of talking about about ideas. So I think I think in some ways, because of the God system they have, we got philosophy. <laughs> I got such a wonderful legacy for it to have. Um, something, I guess, I wonder if it's related to this, actually. Um, where I was about to go was to get your thoughts on this transition we made 
from a world in which the gods are like us but more so mm. to a world in which the god is unlike us but more mm. so that the 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 foundational characteristic of god is that you cannot truly understand like it like the the mind repels but i also wonder then how much that affected the way worshipers acted because as you say there was this very very close connection um between early philosophy and natural science and um religion and it was true for some period at least in christianity i mean you can find great experiments being done by monks and others but but over time you begin to see the split open up and i wonder if some of the split doesn't have to do with the idea of god being unknowable and there being something within um within creation that is perfect and beyond humans capacity to understand uh whereas when the gods are just are very knowable and they're in fact expressions of human frailty and failing maybe it doesn't feel like you have to have that divide because to understand the gods and to understand what they've created is not itself a is is not some kind of claim of arrogance mm. I think there was a little bit of a sense of unknowability about the the Greek gods because you could never anticipate how they might react to something. You know, would would they react as as the kind, merciful, benevolent version of themselves or would they react? So there was this sort of mystery that you know, you could never get to the bottom of, of, of a particular God. But I think that what started to happen is this thing that I, I found very interesting when I studied it is the idea of the, of the mystery cult. So originally, you know, you have all these gods and, and people might have particular associations or attachments to particular gods, but, but you were supposed to be kind of sacrificing to, to everybody and covering all your bases. Then at the end of life, you go down into this underworld and, and if you're Achilles or Helen, you might get to walk in the, you know, the aisles of the the blessed. Um, you might get to go to the special Elysian fields. And if you were really, really terrible, you might end up down in Tartarus. But basically everybody, almost everybody ended up in just the underworld, which was not a particularly pleasant place to be. And so there came about this idea of mystery cults. So mystery cults, were where you dedicated yourself to a particular deity. There was one deity that was your special deity. You were still allowed to worship other deities. It wasn't monotheism, but you had a special relationship with that deity. And if you worshipped them and you were initiated into um, into their rites, that then you would be taken care of in the afterlife. And so I think it's interesting that there was this sort of hole in the way people were thinking about life and death where you know wow that afterlife is not that appealing oh but if i if i behave well and i do all my right things with this one deity then they'll take me to a special place in the afterlife they'll look out for me extra so mystery cults were kind of this interesting bridge to monotheism that i always find a wonderful part of ancient history why do we call them mystery cults? It sounds like a loyalty cult or maybe just a cult cult. What is mysterious about them? Yes. So so it means um, it comes from the word for I, for initiate, meaning that you had to enter the cult through some kind of special ritual to belong to it. And some of these rituals, uh, what's interesting is that a lot of these rituals are still secret, that the, the cult members kept the secret of what the ritual was like. Some of them we know a little bit more about. 
there was one initiation cult to the goddess Sibylle, where if you were male, you would, um, and you were going to become one of her high priests, you could belong to the cult and not do this as a male. But if you wanted to become one of Sibylle's high priests, the initiation rite ended with you castrating yourself. So some of them were intense. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that does, that does sound intense. <laughs> I'm going to take a hard pivot in the conversation here after that. Are you a comic book fan at all? I, you know, I did not grow up reading comic books at all. I think the first sort of graphic novel that I read in my life, actually, I, I guess occasionally in the supermarket line, I would read Archie comics, but that was as close as I got. And then the next thing I read was Mouse. And I absolutely, you know, loved Mouse and my my mind was completely blown by it. And so now I read, I do read some graphic novels. I, I love Fun Home and, but I didn't grow up reading the Marvel comics or or the DC comics. Well, this is going to be a harder line of questioning, but because they've become so dominant in our culture, I'm always fascinated by the question of whether or not they represent the myths and mythological figures of our age, because they have a lot in common. Um, and in some cases, like quite literally, there's a huge amount of cross-pollination between Greek and Norse mythology and both the DC and Marvel universes. Ares is a figure in both of them. Hercules is a figure in both of them. Zeus in both of them. Thor and Marvel. Uh, and it kind of goes on like that. Yes. I mean, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And they represent our yearning, I think, towards the mythic and our, uh, you know, I think human beings love epic. We love huge stories with larger than life characters who have huge flaws and huge strengths and, you know, titanic beings meeting each other in battle, nemeses. I mean, all of these things are, are really time-honored, exciting, thrilling stories. And so I think Marvel and other comic book series are, are really speaking to that. And, and as you say, self-consciously harvesting from that tradition and then kind of bringing it into, into the modern world. Um, I always think it's so funny how I, growing up, I didn't understand that Wonder Woman is situated so firmly in the <laughs> world of Greek mythology. Um, Circe is actually one of her nemeses in, in some of the original storylines. I think finally, I just just heard from from someone that in a new reboot of Wonder Woman, Cersei is no longer going to be so villainous. So that's nice to hear. I, I like that they're coming and, and running that running that information by you beforehand. <laughs> oh no no, it was not. I didn't hear from. I heard from. I think a, a comic book fan, not from. Yeah, no, DC is not getting in touch with me. <laughs> right, they're not like. Oh, as the head of the Cersei mystery cult, we want you to know. <laughs> So one of the things that is so striking to me about um, comic books, which does harken back to Greek mythology, but seems in many ways to be something that got lost for a while and now is is making a comeback, is this idea of just being able to retell the same myth over and over again, mm. but just change it. Yes. And the the flexibility they have, it has given them this interesting power where you can reboot Spider-Man over and over and over again, um, and sometimes do it very self-consciously. I don't know if um, you have uh, seen the Spider-Verse movie, which is the greatest thing that the human race has accomplished in the past <laughs> couple of years. But it, it has this very self-conscious idea of the, the multiverse and, you know, okay, go fine, we're going to tell the story again and again and again and again. And that power to take a basically familiar figure and then continuously reshape them for what society needs to hear or explore right now to, to kind of combine the familiar with the new so the new becomes a little bit easier mm -hmm. to access seems very powerful to me. I think people look 
right now at the profusion of sequels as a sign of, as my friend Ross Douth would say, decadence. Mm-hmm. And I'm there, I'm not saying there's not something to that. But at the same time, the idea that you would use the same figures to tell new stories has been around a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily just a sign of cultural exhaustion. It might also be a sign that we need some amount of familiarity to deal with how difficult the new is to explore right now. Yes, I I totally agree. Um, and I, you know, while I think that at times, you know, an endless rebooting something can be just a, you know, a cash grab or creative exhaustion, I do think it's possible for it to be in that direction. But I, I, I think that much more of it is this sort of old human impulse that we have to to want to see the things we love in in a new way, to have that exciting moment where something we love already is made new again. I mean, is there anything better than that, than seeing, you know, I think about it in terms of theater. I have seen all of Shakespeare's plays. I've read them all. I've worked with them. I've directed most of them. And yet every time I see a production that makes me see something new in the play, I think, oh, this is so great. You know, this director has brought something new that I hadn't seen before. They they've revealed something, illuminated something. And so I think I think that impulse is just so so old and and you know, as soon as Homer existed, as soon as the Iliad and the Odyssey were out there as stories, they were being told and retold and reworked and changed and shifted. And, you know, there's so many different myths about Achilles that when I wrote the Song of Achilles, which is about the life of Achilles, I couldn't possibly use them all because there are so many and they're often contradictory. Um, and they're all exploring different aspects of his story and they all have him making different choices and, and doing different things. And I, so I think that impulse to kind of reboot is absolutely present in the ancient Greek worlds, you know, but, except they didn't, they didn't think of it that way. They just thought of it as, you know, well, here's Ovid doing, doing Achilles. Um, here's Ovid's version of the Trojan War and here's Virgil's version of the Trojan War. And that was considered totally expected that these stories would get retold, that there was no definitive version and that you would want to see them reworked and have new pieces brought into them. So I love great adaptations and great reboots. And I think that when they're good, they are just so good. How did you develop the courage or the belief or the intention to to do a reboot of your own? I mean, as a you, I believe you started Song of Achilles when you were pretty young, right? A couple of years after college, mm-hmm. or if I, if, I, if I read your biography on this right. And it is already a tremendous leap of faith <laughs> to say, I'm going to create a book, right? I mean, I am terrified to ever, like, I would never write a fiction book, um, and nobody would read it if I did, because I'd be terrible <laughs> at it. But to then, to then also say, I'm going to take one of the most famous books in human history and put my own spin on it, right? Like crack knuckles and like, let's rewrite the canon. Like that's an even larger level of uh, ambition. And I'm curious how it became yours and why Achilles was where you started to make this a more complicated triple question because he kind of sucks. <laughs> um, so first of all, I think the 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 concept you're getting at, which I was well aware of at the time, is the concept of hubris. You know, that the Greeks definitely believed that this overweening pride would result in swift punishment with a lightning bolt from above. 
And I definitely worried about that lightning bolt. And I think that the answer to how I had the guts to do that is that I did it completely in secret. So I didn't tell my classics professors that I was working on it. And I didn't tell my peers that I was working on it. And it was something that I did feeling completely illicit and completely blasphemous. And so, you know, like as if the police were going to come and arrest me and take me away, the classics police. But at the same time, I had this drive to say something that I felt like I had, you know, there's this sort of truism about writing, which is write the book that you want to read. And I felt that there was this thing that wasn't being said about Achilles and his relationship with Patroclus and them being lovers that I hadn't seen the way I wanted to see it. And so I, at the same time, had this impulse of like, well, I don't see this and I feel like it should be in the world. So I guess I have to do it. And basically what I, the way I talked myself through it is I told myself that I didn't have to tell anyone. And if it was terrible, it would just be for me and it would never go anywhere. And I really, I was, I was very, very worried about it. And at the same time, I I couldn't stop. It was with me. It was sort of constantly turning over in my brain. And and at some point, it kind of felt like if I gave up, I would be giving up on the characters. And I would be giving up on putting out this love story between the two of them in the world. And so oftentimes, I, I feel... When I look back on both the beginning of Song of Achilles and Circe, I kind of feel like I started writing out of rage. And I think it was my rage that the interpretation of Achilles and Patroclus as lovers, which was well established as a possible interpretation in the ancient world, had kind of been covered over, put in the closet, ignored, was not was not being talked about. And I can remember in high school reading the Iliad and thinking, I feel like there's something missing here that I'm not getting. And then sort of realizing, oh my gosh, this makes so much more sense. You know, when, when we think about Achilles and Patroclus um, being, you know, in, in love with each other. Now, I don't think you have to interpret it that way. I don't think that that Homer demands that you would interpret it that way. Um, I think there are other possible interpretations, but I felt like this interpretation had dropped out. So I feel like my rage at wanting to see this in the world and feeling angry that it had been taken out of the tradition was helping to take me through those feelings of blasphemy as well. I think from where we sit now, where Song of Achilles is a beautiful book and it was a huge bestseller and, you know, everything about it is great, that makes a lot of sense. But but what, given the whole range of characters and bit characters and forgotten stories that you could pull from, in a way, Cersei's easy for me to see. She's this, she's very skipped over, fascinating, complex character, first of the witches, an antagonist, and then also a hero in a way, wise, canny, all of it. And Achilles, as I mentioned, is my um, learned, he sucks, (laughs) is not a character that I would have expected to pull somebody like that, right? And particularly to pull somebody, um, you know, into sort of rewriting the myth. So why him? Why of everybody who you ran across in your studies of classics, what what about him in that myth made it feel like of all the things that needed to be restored to the canon or explored in the canon, it was him? I think there were two different things. So one was I was pulled into the mystery of what happens to him when huge ancient myth, spoiler, Patroclus is killed in the Trojan War. 
And no, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said it. Um, so, you know, his companion Patroclus dies. And up to that point in the Iliad, Achilles has been acting like a real pill, I will definitely admit. And he's been saying, you know, I refuse to fight for the Greeks. I'm going to teach them a lesson. They're going to see what what it's like. You can't kick around Achilles anymore. And he gets his mom to talk to Zeus to make the Trojans start winning. So the Greeks all start dying and they say, please, Achilles. He says, no, keep suffering. Not until Agamemnon personally apologizes to me. Um, and Can, you can know, I just interrupt you for one yeah, second please. to say it is literally part of the Achilles mythology that the greatest warrior in Greek history gets mad and calls his mom. Like that, when I say Achilles sucks, it's a it's a strange myth if you step back from it. Yes, exactly. He does, and that happens. That happens right in the first book. Is that he he stomps out of a fight with Agamemnon. And he goes to the ocean and he calls his mom and he cries to his mom and he's like, mom, they're being mean to me. Do something. It is. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but what I found so sympathetic in him is was how how young he is at that moment, that he is he's much younger than everybody else there. He's much younger than Agamemnon, much younger than Odysseus. You know, he's kind of a, a half generation to a generation below them. And that he is there voluntarily. Everyone else is bound by this oath that they swore to protect Helen and Menelaus's relationship. But he's just there for the for the Kleos, for the glory. And that he is there also, he has gone to war knowing that he is never coming home, that he is given a choice. You can live a long and happy life and no one will ever remember your name, or you can die young and be famous forever. So he goes to Troy knowing that he will never see his father again. He will never come home again. He has traded, he has given up everything else for his reputation that he will not even get to enjoy really, because it's going to be a reputation after he's dead. And so that, to me, I found extremely compelling. And and I, I really read the Iliad as the story of him having to live with that choice, that he has made that choice. I have sacrificed literally everything else for my reputation, and now I have to live with that. And what happens when someone attacks my reputation, which is what happens in the first scene of, of the Iliad, Agamemnon attacks his reputation by taking away his war prize, and under those circumstances, Achilles sort of has to go nuclear. He has to hit the button and say, I'm never fighting for you again. I'm going to go get my mom to do something bad to you. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to punish you to the end because that's his reputation is all he has left. So I found him sort of sympathetic once I was thinking about, you know, he knows he's not coming home. This is it. This is all he has. I found that very moving. And at the same time, if I were to name like the worst person in the Iliad, Agamemnon wins hands down. And speaking of our current situation, the Iliad begins with a plague. And it begins with a plague because Agamemnon has taken as a war prize the daughter of a priest of Apollo. The priest of Apollo shows up to ask for his daughter back and he offers Agamemnon fair ransom. Now, when someone offers you fair ransom in the ancient world, you're supposed to give back whatever the thing is. But Agamemnon not only does not give the girl back, but he insults the priest and sends him away with sort of harsh words and threats. So the priest, of course, this is not very smart on Agamemnon's part, goes to the god Apollo and says, punish the Greeks. So Apollo sends down a plague. 
For nine days, people die all across the Greek army. The fires burning the corpses are burning constantly. And Agamemnon says nothing and does nothing, even though everybody knows whose fault it is. He does nothing. And finally, Achilles says, okay, we got to get everybody together. If Agamemnon won't act, I will act. And he gets everybody together and he has the priests say, hey, what do you think's going on, priest? Could it be that someone offended a god? And the priest says, yes, of course, it's Agamemnon. And Agamemnon blows up at Achilles for embarrassing him in front of everybody, even though it was completely his fault. So that also, I think, is is sympathetic to Achilles. And by the way, I'm not uh, stating parallels, but the ancients had a saying, nothing new under the sun. Yes, there's a very Greek dimension to some of the figures on the national stage right that now. Let me let me put it that way. <laughs> that is a good way to put it. Well, I will just transition back to why I think that makes Achilles likable. That in this moment, he stands up to the bully. He stands up to the bully who is causing people to die. And that's why Agamemnon attacks him. So he puts himself out there to try and save the Greek army. And the response is that he gets attacked and that kind of kicks off the Iliad. So I I feel like actually he's acting pretty admirably there. And the other thing I, I love about Achilles is this beautiful line he has in the Iliad where he says, I hate like the gates of death, the man who says one thing and hides another in his heart. And I love this idea that Achilles is just this, he's honest, that it's both his strength and his fault. You know, there's so many times in the Iliad where you wish you could say to Achilles, like, buddy, like, just take it down one notch. Like, (laughs) if you could just be a little more diplomatic, it would be really, life would be easier for you. But he can't do that. He's one of these people who sort of feels and speaks. And I love that that makes him such a wonderful foil for Odysseus. You know, that between the Iliad and the Odyssey, we have these two men who are so opposite from each other in so many ways. You know, Achilles, the young, idealistic, brash, honest, proud warrior. And then Odysseus, the liar, the politician, the manipulator. I think it's interesting that they're they're so... They're so different. And I I loved that part, that wonderfully flawed flawed part of Achilles, where he speaks speaks the truth even when it gets him in trouble. What in the Greek canon is the story or the figure that feels most Trumpist to you? That is such a good question. I mean... I think I might have to go. Oh gosh, it's there's so many contenders, but I think I think I might have to go with with right now. I'm feeling Agamemnon. You know, I I might have a different answer on another day, but right now I'm feeling Agamemnon. Agamemnon always acts in with his self interest in mind. In fact, what's interesting is that some etymologists and scholars believe that the term Agamemnon, um, Memnon means kind of like hanging back. And there's this idea that he 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 was described as being good at throwing spears, which is, you know, that's a nice, nice compliment for somebody. But then there's this idea that um, if you're throwing spears, it's because you're way, way back <laughs> from where the battle is. 
and you're, you know, you're the back of the line. Okay, yes, you can throw your spear over 50 men, but that means that you're, you know, not not in the front line at all. Um, so Agamemnon kind of gets it at, at every level in the ancient literature. He's selfish, he's um, cowardly, he's, you know, lashes out, he's defensive. So I feel like we have a nice simmering cocktail of that going on right now. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're a very, very beautiful sentence-level writer which is something I noticed because I have my talents as a writer, but that is not really one of them. How do you practice that? How did how did you develop that part of your craft? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. I think I, I am a huge rewriter, and I always try to make sure that every word in a sentence is load-bearing. So I try to, you know, make sure that I'm not adding in more and more and more that everything that's there is is necessary. Um, I read a lot of poetry to that end. I feel like poetry, it, you know, does everything that novels do, but in this beautifully compact and elegiac way. And so I try to start many writing days reading a little bit of poetry and sort of trying to remember that I want each word to feel active. And then I just, you know, edit like crazy. <laughs> How do you know when a sentence isn't there yet or it is? And, and I'll, this, I'll add some personal into this because so my partner's a writer and she's also a very, very a beautiful sentence level writer. And that capacity to edit and re-edit and re-re-edit a sentence, I don't seem to have it. Not that I don't <laughs> want it, but that I can't look at a sentence I've written and imagine it radically different. Now, obviously, I have to rewrite things, but the only thing I can see clearly in my own work is argument and mm. clarity. I can't easily imagine the multiverse of ways that same sentence could appear and how you could reframe the word. So what is it when you are editing, you are looking for? Do you read it aloud for the music of it? Is there just a feeling in you of rightness? Like, How do you, how do you see the alternatives and know when to stop? I do. Um, I do read aloud. I think reading aloud is is important, particularly because I'm so influenced by Homer, which was originally oral poetry. And so I, I really want the sentences to have sort of an uh, oral quality to them, an oral presence, I guess. So I, I do read aloud and you can hear pretty quickly when you're reading aloud if there's, you know, a real clangor in there. What are the things you stop over? What are the things you stumble over? I, I oftentimes will print out and edit on paper as opposed to on the screen. I feel like that really helps me see anew. I have a really good first reader. I'm very fortunate that my husband is maybe the best editor I've ever known. And um, so he he also helps me if I'm if I'm, you know, if I have a darling in there that that needs to be killed, as they say, um, he will he will definitely point that out to me. 
But for me, I think I just want it to feel like it's running smooth. And so I'm sort of, I'm reading it aloud or I'm reading it on the page and I'm, I'm, it feels kind of like, oh, there's a snag. Stop. Like there's something catching there. And then it runs smooth for a little bit and then there's another snag and another snag. And um, I read it over a long period of time. So, you know, I'll reread the same chapter, I mean, a hundred different times, a hundred different times of day, you know, over and over and over again. And so even if I don't catch it the first 25 times, you know, maybe on the 26th time, I'll catch it or I'll see it. Or I'm just trying to make it all feel like it's just moving seamlessly ahead. I've read in a couple of interviews where you've talked about uh, you're you're a parent and you've talked about your love of children's books. And I became a parent about a year ago and so have dived deep into the world of children's books. <laughs> and something I didn't expect is just how wonderful they are with language yeah. and just how much more playful and focused on the sounds words can make. Yeah. And so I guess what I want to ask the question is this. What can we all learn as writers or even just speakers from Sandra Boynton? Oh, I'm so, I was just going to say dinosaur dance. I mean, I think that just pure playfulness and that love of sound and word, the bounce of language, the buoyancy, um, the life, the activated, you know, you say a sentence and it's, and it's just an amazing sentence. Both my children loved Muba La La La, which, you know, is not a complicated book, but it takes so much skill to make a book that a six-month-old will listen to 50 times in a row. <laughs> and every time I read, um, I'm thinking of Dinosaur Dance in, in particular, where it has a bunch of dinosaurs, you know, dancing, but it's all about the sound. So the Velociraptor twins go bompity bomp. And I, I don't know. It's just genius. It's po it's a it's a type of poetry, I think. And there's humor mixed in as well and surprise. I mean, I think I think the element of surprise while still making sense is an important piece of it. So I, I'm a huge Sandra Boynton fan. Um and there's so many wonderful, wonderful children's books out there that that have that playfulness of sound and I, I love it. I think it's a wonderful thing to pass on, pass on to kids. What are some children's books you recommend or love? Let's see. My kids are, are now five and three, so I'm 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 a little bit older. Um, I love uh, one of my favorites is I. It has actually no words at all. Um, it's Journey, which is the story of this girl sort of falling into a magical world that she enters with this magical crayon and going through these sort of amazing landscapes and and adventures. It's 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 beautiful and just shows that as wonderful as language is, you don't always need language if you have if you have amazing images. I mean, I have always loved the Lorax. There's so many amazing words in that. I mean, obviously there's the message of the Lorax, but there's also just Dr. Seuss's wordplay, like talking about the um, the old onceler who has a groovulous glove that he uses and he lets down a snurgly hose and he sounds as if he has smallish bees up his nose. I mean, just the like, the, again, that language bounce, the sort of made up 
language, the like the idea that we all know what a snurgly hose would sound like, trying to listen through it, even though that's not a real word. The the ability to create sense just through the sound of the word, even if the word is not real, is always amazing to me when I read the Lorax. I've always wanted a word for not onomatopoeia, but a word for words that sound like what they are yeah. somehow. Yeah. Like and I think there is one that I maybe have forgotten, but like smooth. Yeah. Yeah. Is a smooth word somehow. <laughs> it is. Whereas like pulchritudinous does not sound pretty, right? Like there's this way and it does not sound pretty for people who don't know that word, um, even though it means pretty, which is the best thing in the English language. There's just like this way in which words can contain their essence. Yeah. That's very hard to capture, but but it's a great, and I guess people could argue over it, it's subjective, but it's, uh, it's a great when you can hit it, when a word hits it, it's really wonderful. Glide. Yeah. What writers most influence the way you actually write prose? This is always a fraught question for me because for some reason when I answer it, I always feel like I'm claiming that I'm as good as those writers. So I'm going to say up front that I'm not. <laughs> but I will talk about the writers that I loved and whose prose I admired and reread and reread as a young person. I loved Toni Morrison. I loved Margaret Atwood. I loved Isabel Allende and sort of her storytelling. I loved poetry. I read a lot. I mean, this is a real cliche, a teenage girl reading Sylvia Plath, but I loved Sylvia Plath. <laughs> and, and I loved the, you know, the sound of her words when I was a teenager. And I, I listened to her poetry a lot when I could listen to it and, and read it a lot. I loved James Baldwin. He was one of my favorite, my favorite writers. A Raisin in the Sun was one of my favorite plays. I read a lot of plays when I was a teenager, and I feel like those were very formative. So A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry, and then um, Everything by Tennessee Williams. I read Tennessee Williams obsessively. So Tennessee Williams, I feel. I mean, I don't really think you can look at my work and find Tennessee Williams in there, but I feel like he must have gone in there because I read him so much. <laughs> and uh, Nora Ephron. Those were the the writers that were kind of always right right by my side. If you could travel back in time to experience any point in history for a year-long period, what year would you choose? Wow. That is such an interesting question. Um, what year would I choose? Oh my gosh, there are so many moments. My my you're uh, this is as soon as we stop this podcast, I'm going to make a list of like 50 <laughs> 50 years I would want to experience. Okay, I'm going to name 31 BCE, I would like to experience the meltdown leading up to the Battle of Actium in Cleopatra's court. That is such a great specific answer. <laughs> On Cleopatra's court, why do you think it is that Greek and Norse myths are so dominant for kids when you have these amazing um, pantheons of Egyptian mythology mm. and Native American and so on? Like, what What is it about Greek and Norse that has been dominant? Is it a colonialism thing or like how do you how do you explain that yeah i mean i think it i think it builds on itself that you know we love the mischildren people love the mischildren and then they pass them on to their kids and there's this sense of you know that even though greek myths are filled with necrophilia and bestiality and horrendous adultery and cruelty that they're good literature there's this sort of they've they've gotten put into the into the you know into the canon somehow but I love Egyptian mythology, and I find it so 
beautiful and interesting and and different. And actually, that was the I, I loved it as a child too. I was fortunate to be in New York City, and so I got to go to the Egyptian wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I would oftentimes choose that over the Greek and Roman wings because I loved it. I loved it so so much. And it's been interesting that with my own children, my own children have actually been much more drawn to Egyptian mythology as well. So it's there are so many other absolutely amazing mythologies out there. Um, I also love the Indian epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. And they're so interesting to look at against the Iliad and the Odyssey as well. So, I, I mean, I think if you if you love myth, it's all good. And, and I think it's sort of unfair that, <laughs> that Greek and Norse have kind of um, taken up the lion's share of the space. And let me end here then on that note, which is if you would actually just like to read some mythology, what are a couple books or translations you would recommend? So I would absolutely recommend Emily Wilson's uh, translation um, of The Odyssey. Edith Hamilton, Tried and True. Her myth collection is is wonderful and it's been around a long time. Stephen Fry, the actor um, and writer, has written, I think, two modern myth retelling, sorry, not modern, but, you know, contemporary retellings of, of Greek myths, mythos and heroes, I believe. I haven't actually read them yet, which I feel terrible about, but people have been saying that they are excellent. So those seem like a good, a good place. I love Anne Carson's translations. She is a poet classicist. Her translations of Sappho, one of the only female voices that has survived to us from the ancient world, um, are so beautiful. Sappho's corpus is unfortunately basically in tatters, but she gives the Greek on one side and the English on the other, and she sort of shows where all the breaks are because there's a lot of the poems that are missing. Um, and that collection of a translation of Sappho is called If Not Winter. And again, that's Anne Carson. Um, Anne Carson has also done one of my favorite books of all time called Autobiography of Red, which is a, a retelling of um, a Hercules myth that is just absolutely outstanding and strange. Madeline Miller, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you to Madeline Miller for being on the show. Thank you to all of you for being here. If there are other people who are maybe outside the show's normal topics that you think would be great on the show, I'd love to hear about them. Uh, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Some of my favorite episodes have been when you all have sent in ideas for writers and thinkers and artists that I've not heard of or had not followed the work myself, but you're right that they'd be wonderful. That was not actually the case for this one, but like N.K. Jemison came to me through uh, somebody out there in, in podcast land. So I do take these recommendations seriously, and I would like to make sure the show has range in a difficult period. I think it's important that we keep thinking about things, art and beauty and stories that are not just coronavirus. So we're paying attention to all that. Uh, thank you, of course, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. Uh, both of them, I just want to say, have been extraordinary through making this show under adverse circumstances, and I'm very grateful to them. Again, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, and the Ezra Klein Show, as always, a Vox Media podcast production. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 